Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Our question today, our question today from Jesus comes from probably the most famous story he ever told. You'll find it in Luke chapter 10, if you care to turn there. You could argue that this is the best-known story from the whole Bible. It has been told and retold a million times a million. It's been used in the plot of all kinds of short stories and novels and movies and plays. It's been used in real bold ways. It's been disguised. It's, it's a famous story. But the story that we're going to look at that occasions his question today is not a standalone. He didn't just decide one day, I believe I'll spin out a good story. There's a reason. In the 10th chapter, 25th verse is the reason. He is approached by an expert in the law, the Mosaic law, the first five books of your Bible. This guy likely had them memorized word for word. He knew all of the interpretations. He was the go-to guy if you had questions about those books of the law. And there wasn't anything that he wasn't conversant with in those first five books. He was an expert. He's what we call a lawyer. He was a lawyer of that law. And he knew it backwards and forwards. And he approaches Jesus, this very bright, learned, expert, scholar, leader, and he approaches Jesus with a question. You find it in the 25th verse of the 10th chapter of Luke. And a lawyer stood up. Now, there's a crowd of people around. Jesus, at this point in his career and life, is seldom alone. In fact, to get alone, he has to really work hard. And so he's surrounded by a lot of people, and a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, rabbi, rabbi means teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now let's give this guy some due because he has listened long enough to know that the only kind of life Jesus Christ is interested in is eternal life, forever life. And when he gives you life, it's eternal life. It's life that begins at that point that you accept him and it never ends. There may be death, what we call death. There may be a stopping of the heart and a ceasing of the alpha brain waves. But you never die. In fact, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be instantly present with the Lord. There is no stop-go. There is no intermediate place. If you belong to Christ and He lives His life in you, it's eternal life. And that eternal life doesn't start when you die and when we have your funeral. That eternal life started the moment you said yes to Jesus Christ. And it will never, never end. Ever. So this guy knows that Jesus only deals in eternal life. And so he asks him this question, Teacher, what must I do? His mindset is, I've got to do something. What must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Now, while it might be a good question, and it's a very good question, in fact, you could say this is the question of the ages. This is certainly one of the big questions of life. It's not an honest one in his case. Good question, but for him, not an honest question. Why? Because we're told. Why was he asking the question? He's asking the question to test Jesus, to tease him out, to try and catch him in a contradiction and jump all over his case. So his motive is he's testing Jesus, and that makes it a dishonest question in his case. What he's looking for is a joust with Jesus. And he was wishing not only to fuss with Jesus and catch him off guard, but we're also told later in the story that he, his great wish was to justify himself. Now, every single one of us are very familiar with that, that activity, justifying ourselves. We know what that tactic is all about, don't we? And when you think about it, a lot of our talk, our casual talk, and even our self-talk is just that, justifying ourselves, burnishing our own image to make ourselves appear better than we are, smarter than we are, holier than we are, more correct than we are. We do a lot of that. And a lot of what we do in talking, even to ourselves, is, is explaining why we are right. You see? So this tactic that he's using here, justifying himself, it, we're familiar with it because it is so ingrained in us that, to tell you the truth, this is what makes a simple apology almost impossible. You can see it when the politicians get in trouble and they apologize. If I have offended anyone, <laughs> there's a justification there. And then they go on to tell you why they had to do this wrong thing. It's very difficult for human beings just to say, I was wrong, and leave it at that. And it also makes a real apology very rare, that we could apologize without qualifiers. So the guy is wishing to test Jesus, and he's wishing to justify himself. And so he approaches Jesus, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, what is written in your law? You are the expert at the law, lawyer. How do you read it? You should already know the answer. Now, there's nothing wrong with this scholar's knowledge. But Jesus nails it. There's something very wrong with the way he reads the Bible. You know, you can be very familiar with the Word of God and read it for all the wrong reasons. Woe unto you if you run into somebody who is like that. Nothing wrong with his scholarship, nothing wrong with his knowledge, his expertise, but Jesus nails it. How do you read it? There's something wrong with the way he reads the law. And Jesus is really saying, to this guy, the arena of the law, that is your area of expertise. It's your profession. Now, some people think that while Jesus is, is saying this to the guy, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, what is written in the law, expert? How do you read it? Some people think that what Jesus might have been doing, because rabbis did this, he may have been tapping the guy while he's saying, what is written in the law, how do you read it? 
and he may have been tapping him a little box on his forehead. The Orthodox wore a thing, and some Orthodox still wear it, called a phylactery. It's a little wooden box covered with leather, and it has straps on it, so you can fasten fasten it around your head, and it goes right on your forehead between your eyes. They did this to literally fulfill the law that says, don't let this law depart from your mind, keep it between your eyes. And so they literally got a little box, fastened it around their head, and in that little box were scraps of Scripture. And the scrap of Scripture that would have been carried in his phylactery, in the little box that Jesus might have been tapping, is a Scripture called the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, only one God. And then it goes on to say, you shall love the Lord your God, how? With all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That was written on a little scrap inside the box on his head. And Jesus, as he's talking to him, saying, what is written in the law may have been tapping him on the box. It's your profession. How does it read to you? It makes for an embarrassing moment. And it may be that the the crowd, there are people that are beginning to twitter with laughter as he taps him on the head. Remember the old movie, McFly? Anybody home? He's tapping him on the head. And people are starting to be amused. But the lawyer rallies back with a quick answer. And he answers correctly, Well, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the law says, Deuteronomy 6. Correct. But now the lawyer is in a bad light in front of that crowd because he now appears to have asked a needless question. It is one that everybody knows the answer to, whether they've got it in the box or not. Everybody knows the answer to your question, simpleton. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the answer. Why are you asking such a simple question? Now, in trying to test Jesus, this now deflated lawyer had come loaded for a big, involved discussion, a theological discussion. But now he's facing the sorry end of a very promising debate. He's embarrassed. And likely people are beginning to look around and beginning to grin at him. And so now he has to make himself look better, doesn't he? Justifies himself. And so we get a second question from the lawyer. The first was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now his second question, to try and deflect some of this and show that he really is an expert... His question now is to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? As in, love your neighbor as yourself. Who who then is my neighbor? Now that looks like a kid deflection to us, but it's actually a very clever thrust of his verbal sword as he's trying to pin Jesus on one of the sharpest questions of that age. It's a racial question, really, for them. 
who is my neighbor, because the Jewish people did not consider non-Jews their neighbors. They tolerated them, would do business with them. They would allow them to live in their country, but they really did not consider anybody not of their tribe to be a real neighbor, as in love your neighbor as yourself. Law, and more importantly to them, their great tradition, said that a Jew could not lift up his or her hand against a neighbor, a fellow Jew. But if a person were a stranger, an alien, not one of them, not one of their crowd, then almost any treatment of that person was okay. And when you think about it, nearly all people are like that toward people that we put in the category of others, the other. And of course, when we're like that, we're all wrong. Back in that day, the Greeks looked down on the barbarians. In fact, the word barbarian comes from a joke that the Greeks used to tell about non-Greeks. If you're not an educated Greek like us, then you talk funny, and you say, bar, 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 bar. Barbarian. They looked down on the non-Greek, and the Europeans looked down on the non-Europeans. History tells us that. Whites despise blacks. Mexican people, people from Mexico, may look down on other fellow Mexicans who are darker, the Oaxacans, right? North against south. There are lines, we see this especially this year, very sharply drawn lines in political races and look down on people that aren't in your group. There was a young lady in our home this last week. One of the girl's friends was, was in our house, and she has just completed a year of living and working and studying in Peru. And I asked her, I was talking to her about what it was like, and she said, you know what? She said, it's really strange to see that there's racism in Peru, that there are some Peruvians that look down on other native Peruvians. That is crazy. It's got to do with tribal lines and where you're from in the country and how dark you are or how light you are. She said, but it's crazy that I saw that there. Human beings are always suspicious of the other, of the other. Apart from Christ, there is no changing that. Now, Jesus can take all that away. But with all that in mind, his question now is to Jesus, so how would you define neighbor? Because some people that live near me, I don't have to be nice to. Now, in the middle of the controversy, the question can never be settled. Have you noticed that? You ever noticed that? That in the heat of battle, in the middle of the controversy, you can't settle very much. That's why arguments seldom work out or solve anything while you're arguing. And so what Jesus does, he's, he, he lifts out of the controversy, he takes the controversy about who is my neighbor, which is really a racial question for them. He lifts it out of the controversy and he sets it down on a dangerous road from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
And that's the start of his story. He says, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, even though Jericho is north of Jerusalem, he says went down. And what he means by that is, what they know, and we probably don't, that Jerusalem is 2,000 feet above sea level. Jericho is 1,000 feet below sea level, and only 20 miles separate the two. That means to get from one to the other, you've got to do a lot of switching back and a lot of twists and a lot of turns because the elevation drops so suddenly. 20 miles. Now on that 20 miles of switchbacks, it is a place that is pockmarked with limestone caves, which offered plenty of cover for thugs of every description. And so there were frequent attacks on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, unless you were smart and traveled in a very large and well-armed group. But Jesus says a certain man, all by himself, went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He should have known better because by Jesus' time, that road was nicknamed the Bloody Pass because there had been so much ugliness that had happened there. And as the story unfolds, that certain man is stripped naked by the thugs. He's beaten savagely. He's robbed of everything. If he had a pack animal with him, it's gone. Everything is gone. And now those carefully worded statements from the lawyer, as he sees the man beaten and half dead, and all of the justifications of the lawyer are forgotten by this rough reality of seeing the victim's blood seeping into the dirt as he's dying. Now by coincidence, Jesus says, a priest comes down that road. A professional good guy comes down the road. It's a coincidence. But, but it's only within the story that it's a coincidence because there are no coincidences where Jesus is going with this story. He's totally in control. But the priest comes by and he looks at the guy, wounded and obviously in bad shape, and he offers nothing, keeps on going. And then a little bit later on, a Levite, a member of the hereditary order of temple keepers, he comes down the road. Now these Levites were divided into 24 courses, groups, because there were a bunch of them. You, there were too many of them to have them serving all the time. And so they were divided into 24 groups. He's a member of one of those courses and you got a chance once a year to serve for two weeks in the temple. That was it. That was the high point of your year. You lived all year long to serve in the temple for that two-week period. And so one of those Levites now comes along. And he does nothing. He sees him. He likely reasons in his brain. Even if he wanted to help him, I'm not going to help him because if I touch him, the outside chance that he's a dead man, if I touch him, I will be contaminated and I will not be able to serve my two weeks. And so he goes on and does nothing, doesn't even touch him, nothing. A bombshell is coming. If this story were a melodrama, you ever been to a melodrama? where the audience participates, right? 
if this story were a melodrama, <clears throat> there would be cheers for the walk-on of the priest and the Levite. They are the heroes. And, and people would have, yay, priest, yay, Levite. And there would have been a loud round of booze for the next player, a Samaritan. A Samaritan comes around the corner. A Samaritan sees the man laying there. Now between the Jewish people and the Samaritans, there was a mutual and visceral hatred for one another. And it went back generations. In fact, most people at that time didn't even remember, like the Hatfield and McCoys, how did we even get started with this? But they hated each other. And things had not been improved Shortly before Jesus would have told this story, it's not in your Bible, but it's in the pages of history, a group of Samaritan boys, young men, had decided on a lark to slaughter a pig and throw it in the Jerusalem temple. That's the worst. And so that re-inflamed and reignited this long, generations-long hatred. And so here comes a Samaritan when the Samaritan comes on, he would have gotten booed at a melodrama. But if you look, way back in chapter 9, this story gets even crazier when you consider the last encounter Jesus himself had with Samaritans. Back in chapter 9, in the 52nd verse, he had gone by a village of the Samaritans and intended to go into the village. He had no problem with those folks, nor they with him. And he decided to go into the village, maybe, and so he sent some of his men ahead of him to make arrangements, lodging, whatever, food. But the Samaritans in the village did not receive him. They told him to keep moving because Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they so hated the Jews and anything to do with the Jews, the capital city of Jerusalem, they hated that too. And if you're going to Jerusalem, we don't want anything to do with you either. And so they wouldn't even let Jesus and his men stop. That was the last encounter Jesus had had with the Samaritans. And you would have expected from that encounter for the story that he now tells about the Samaritan to turn out way differently you would have expected, because he got burned himself, that the hero and the villain would have been switched. But as Jesus tells this story, it would have been the Samaritan who was the bad guy and the priest and Levite that were heroes, but he flips it. And you know how the story goes. The Samaritan stops, and he, he administers first aid to the guy the best he can, and he binds up his wounds. Did he come with a kit? Not likely. Did he have bandages? No. So he would have torn up some of his own things because the guy is naked, his own clothes, to bind the guy up. And then he puts him on his animal, and he walks him into Jericho, and there he gets him the medical attention he needs at his own expense, and he puts him in the best hotel he can. And in fact, when it's time for him to leave the next day or so, his business is transacted and he's leaving town again. He leaves a large sum with the innkeeper saying, take care of him. Anything he needs, food, lodging, anything, I've given you more than enough. And if, if, if he spends that, when I come back, I'll, I'll pay it back again. 
So there's extravagance from the Samaritan hero, right? He, he, he even, his extravagance even extends to aftercare, post-op with the guy. Well, that's the story that Jesus tells in answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life and who, by the way, is my neighbor that I'm supposed to love? Really, what we can pull from this story is very simple today. It's a question that Jesus asked, one of 295. This is our 13th that we've looked at. And the question that Jesus asked comes after the story, verse 36, if you care to look at it. He wraps up that incredible story that turns everything on its head. And then he says to these people, and most especially to the lawyer who asked, Now, which of these three, priests, Levites, Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the thugs? Simple, really. Jesus is saying about this whole question of neighbors, you can't choose your neighbors. You can't choose your neighbors. Until that Samaritan, think about it, until he turned that twisting corner, that last corner, and he sees the body bleeding, he didn't even know that the victim existed, right? He stumbles on it, almost literally stumbles on the guy. It wasn't a plan. It wasn't in his daytimer. It happened. He didn't choose it. You know, the things that Jesus expects of us as his followers, disciples, apprentices, the things he expects of us are never obscure. They're never hidden. And they're never really difficult. He makes it pretty plain. Care for the poor. I want you to do that. And it's not difficult. He says it. Give him a cup of cold water. How hard is that? Don't lay up treasure for yourself on earth. In other words, don't accumulate and don't stake your life on your stuff. Well, that's pretty plain and it's not hard. And here, love your neighbor. Now the question is, who is my neighbor? And his answer is, who around you is hurting? That's your neighbor. And you're not going to pick and choose. Your neighbors, hurting neighbors, are going to happen to you, you see. In John 10.10, 10, you get two agendas. You get Satan's agenda, you get Christ's agenda. And Jesus will say it this way. He will say, I have come that you might have the fullest possible kind of life that never ends. Full life now, full life later, never ends. Full of good things now, good things later. I've come that you might have an abundant life. That's his agenda. But earlier in the verse, he had tipped his hand to Satan's agenda, which he knows very well. And he said, the enemy has come to kill and steal and destroy. That's Satan's agenda. That's what he's up to. Uh, that's what the enemy is doing. The one that we call the deceiver, 
the accuser, the worm, the liar, the fraud. What he's about is kill, steal, and destroy as many as he can, as quick as he can. Now, what that means is he will use any means possible. And you know some of his means. He'll use drugs to destroy your life and family. He, he will use sexual confusion to destroy you and yours. He will use chasing money, make that the goal of your life, and you will lose your life. And you'll be dead and destroyed. And every good thing sucked out of life for you if you do that. If you play games with alcohol, he will kill, steal, and destroy with that. Domestic violence. Same thing. He uses different tactics, but his agenda is always kill, steal, and destroy, right? And so what Jesus is saying in this story of the neighbor, who is my neighbor, your neighbor is the one you look around and say, who is hurting? Who is Satan twisted? Who is Satan twisted up that you know? Who has Satan wounded with his lying and killing and destroying? Who has Satan tried to suck the life out of and leave for dead that you know? Now, we're all of us very analytical people. And we want to jump immediately to another question, not who is my neighbor, who is hurting, who is wounded, who's been robbed, who's the victim of Satan. In our analysis, we want to jump to another question that we like better, and that is, why are they hurting? Why are they hurting? But Jesus says, you ask who is hurting, really, and forget the why. Forget the why. Sometimes when we're passing out waters to the hurting people, I'll see a guy that's just totally messed up, and I'll say to him, how in the world did you get in this mess? And sometimes it's a long story, right? It's usually a series, not one, but it's a series of very bad decisions. How the person got in the mess, we want to know that. How did you get in this mess? How, how did they get into this sexual mess? How did they become poor? Why did they start down the death spiral with dope? Why'd you do that? How did you get yourself into this emotional or relationship prison? Those are not our questions, really. Because when we ask those kind of questions, we begin to evaluate. We start evaluating that person then. And our evaluation will run something like this. Well, should I really help this character? Are they deserving of my effort? And you know how those things turn out. We end up doing nothing. Who is your neighbor? We ought not keep the wounded waiting. You can't choose your neighbors. The story is also telling us that neighbors are full of surprises. Full of surprises. We had a neighbor for a number of years. He, he passed away a couple of years ago, lived next door to us, Art. And uh, Art was, I, I had a good time with Art. We became very good friends. We talked a lot. 
Uh, someday I'll tell you about Art. He was a trip. And in the last year of his life, he came to Christ. But Art was a funny guy. In fact, before Christ, he would corner me and tell me the vulgarest stories and think it was very funny. But he did have a good sense of humor. And, and I, I told Art something one day. We hadn't lived there too terribly long. And I told him something I told our girls. If you've ever been to our house, we've got a big bookcase built into one of the walls in the front room. And uh, we hadn't lived there a whole long time, and the girls were on the floor, and they were smaller, of course, then. and uh, Two or three of them, I don't remember how many. And they were on the floor, and I had been scaring them about our new house, telling them that there were ghosts and spooks and in fact, I told one of the girls that in her bedroom that it was built right over top of a gypsy graveyard. And I said, do you ever at night when you're laying in bed, you feel those little pricky things that are itchy on the back of your neck or your leg or something? And I told her, I said, that is the dead gypsy poking their bony skeleton finger at you. That's what that is. So I thought, okay, they're in front of the bookcase. Here's what I'll tell them. And this is what I told them. I said, you see that bookcase there? I said, the lady that built this house died right where you're sitting. And here's the way it happened. She had this house built, and she wanted this giant bookcase put in there, attached to the wall, but she was a really ugly person. She was really mean and really demanding. So when the carpenters were working on the bookshelf, she kept yelling at them and screaming at them and making them hurry, and they couldn't do their best work, so they didn't get it attached really well. And she was a librarian. That's why she wanted the bookshelves. So she brought in a whole bunch of stolen library books, and she put them on the bookshelf. And one day she was standing right there, and because of the way she had treated the carpenters and they couldn't do their good work, it came loose, and it crushed her right there. Well, they sort of believed me, enough to be scared, but later that day, Art was outside. Now, Art was blind. He continued to almost the end to play golf. I don't know how he did that. You wouldn't want to play golf with a blind guy, I wouldn't think. But, but he, was, he was blind, and one day I, I heard his tap, tap, tap. He was taking out his trash. So I went out to talk to him and said, hey, Art, I said, I told the girls this story. Isn't that funny? And he, ha, 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 ha. He, he had a funny laugh. <clears throat> I had no idea what he would do with that story. But sometime later, he caught the girls. He could hear them out playing. And so he called them over. And he later told me this. He said he used a real scary voice. And, and, he, and he took his glasses off so they could see his blind eyes. Right? <laughs> and he said... Have you heard the ghost of Myrna McNamara? That's the lady who owned the house before us. Have you heard her ghost? They were like, oh. And then he kind of recounted the story of her getting crushed to death by the books. So then they thought it was true. <laughs> I had no idea he would do that with my information. I just tell that to tell you that neighbors are full of surprises. Mine was. Now get back to the neighbors that Jesus is talking about. 
who hurts? Who, who around you has been robbed by the enemy? The Samaritan did not choose his neighbor, did he? The neighbor needing help, here's the point, can pop up in the most unusual of places. The neighbor that needs your help could show up on your job. could be a co-worker that you think has got it all together. It could be that least expected person who would have the most serious need, but it would be a need that Jesus Christ can heal, you see. So what we need to do, realizing that our neighbors can be full of surprises, is look around us and ask, who has been robbed? Who has been cheated? Who has been wounded? Who has been bleeding around me? Who do I know that's like that? And, and the Sermon on the Mount will expand the list to include those who borrow from you even without returning. They're hurting too. And the Sermon on the Mount will even include on that list of neighbors that need us our enemies. So who do you know like that, you see? Who do you know like that? Who, who fits into one of those categories of hurt? Surprise, that's your neighbor. That's your neighbor. There's a final thing Jesus is telling the story about, and that is this, that a neighbor is not, listen to me, always somebody else. This is, this is where Jesus got tricky with the lawyer. Look very carefully if you've got your Bible open at verse 36, chapter 10 of Luke. His question, look at his question. Which of these three, priest, Levite, Samaritan, do you think, opinion question now, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? That's where he gets tricky. Who is a neighbor to the man who desperately needed a neighbor? That's his question. And his story on the surface seems not to answer the question that the lawyer had asked, which was, who is my neighbor? It's answering a different question than the crafty lawyer asked. It's a question more like, am I really being a neighbor to anybody who hurts right now? That's the question, you see. You see, for, for us, it is no longer the long-distance, sanitized, insulated, safe-distance evaluating of other people. Should I help? Should I not help? Are they worth the risk? Are they to blame for their own dumb predicament? Have they shot themselves in the foot and it's a waste of my time? We don't get that luxury. Proving ourselves to be a neighbor is no longer a matter of always assessing other people but now, Jesus says, it's a matter of being a certain type of person that Jesus is extremely pleased with. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.